Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Now this week we have a special treat for Valentine's Day. I thought it would be interesting to interview someone who is an expert storyteller and then play one of their stories and include it in the episode uh, for today. And so I'm really thrilled that Dolores Hyduck is going to be joining me. She's an actress and story performer whose work has been featured at a variety of concerts, festivals, and special events throughout the United States. She's been a featured storyteller at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and has been a teller in residence at the International Storytelling Center there. She's produced 12 CDs of original stories, which have all received resource awards from Storytelling World magazine, which is actually very astonishing and, and amazing. Dolores also studied for her master's degree in storytelling back in the 1990s with me. <laughs> and and uh, I knew her back then, and I even knew at the time she was destined to be an acclaimed storyteller and performer in the years to come. And uh, and so I'm really thrilled that Dolores is joining me. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Stephen. It's a treat to be here with you, especially for Valentine's Day. Love stories. I know, like, right? things, yeah. So yeah. in, in a little while, we're going to be playing one of your love stories that, yeah. you, that, that you've told and performed all over the country. And But before we do, let's talk a little bit about storytelling. And I know your background, you've been an actress, you've been a storyteller, and uh, we were just chatting a, a few minutes ago in, before we started recording just about the idea that, you know, theater and storytelling are are closely united, but maybe a little bit separate and different. What's your take on that? Like when, if people would say, oh, you're an, are you an actor? Are you a storyteller? Or do you draw a line or what's the difference? <laughs> if well, there is I, one? I, I know I've, I've thought a lot about this because, you know, I, in addition to doing regular theater, quite a little bit of regular theater and, and then regular, what I want to call regular storytelling performing, I have done well in a theater, performed long performance stories. Yeah. So it's not just standing in front of a microphone and telling a story the way, you know, a lot of wonderful storytellers do. It's it's sort of acting out a story or performing a long story. And people will say, well, is that theater or is that storytelling? <laughs> and and so I've really given tried to give a lot of thought to this. And one of the things I've decided is the is a difference between a play and a story is that in a play, the actors, the no, not the actors, but the characters in the play really don't know how the story is gonna end. Hmm. When you're watching a play, if the actors are good, yeah. you believe that they are in the middle of that situation and that every word they're saying has just come into their head and they are going to make decisions that will affect how the play turns out. Hmm. But that the character really doesn't know what's going to happen in Act Three. Yeah. In a in a storytelling, the narrator knows what's going to happen. Mm. The narrator knows how the story ends up, and 
And so there's, even though you, as you tell the story, you might tell the story in the present tense. Mm. So he walks into the room and he says, you know, and, and so for that moment, you're trying to create this present tense. In fact, the narrator always knows what's going to happen. Yeah, interesting. But in the play, the characters don't know what's going to happen. And one of the one of the things that I, you know, I get asked all the time is about memorization. <laughs> because when you do a play, there's no, I mean, unless you're in an improv play, okay, yeah. that's different. But if you're, you know, if you're doing um, you know, the glass menagerie, you're not making it up as you go along. <laughs> you know, you you got other people who are depending on you to say certain words. So that they know when it's their turn to say certain yeah. words, and you you're not making it up. You're not doing better than Tennessee Williams on that. <laughs> and, and but but I had a director who used to say this wonderful thing. He said, "What you're doing is creating the illusion of the first time, hmm. the illusion that this is the first time you've ever said that." And for me, I think that translates over into storytelling or story performing as, as well where this may be a story. I mean, you just said that the story that people are going to hear later in the podcast yeah. is a story I've told hundreds of times, but I'm also going to tell it next week, actually at a Valentine's party. And my hope is that when I tell it, it will come across as if I'm just sort of thinking of thinking it up as I go along. Yeah. You know, that is, that it's kind of coming together that I'm just relating it as it's, as, as I'm thinking about it. Um, so there, there's a, a skill to the to the memorization uh, that that allows you to create this illusion of the first time, so it doesn't sound rote. I think one of the problems people get into when they talk about memorization and stories is it just becomes rote. Yeah, yeah. The the other problem is when people try to memorize word. There's words that are meant to be read, <laughs> and words that are meant to be said. And if you try to memorize words that are meant to be read mm. unless unless you're david sedaris and we're at a reading <laughs> he is reading his story and we know that he's reading then our brains kind of say okay this is written language and we can yeah. translate that but if somebody is you know once upon a time there was a king he lived in a kingdom <laughs> you know it's not going to work yeah. um and so there's this um there's this sort of taking words that are meant to be said are easier to kind of remember and relate in a natural kind of way because they're meant to be said, not meant yeah. to be read. That's super interesting. You know, I um, had Ed Stivender on uh, a couple of years ago and I asked, we talked about this sort of thing. And, and one of the things that he had said was something I'd never really thought about before, but his, at least his take was that um, storytelling and acting are a little different based on what you're pretending. So this is at least what he said. So let, in other words, like if you're an actress or an actor, let's say, and you're doing a play, you're pretending that the audience isn't there and they're pretending that you don't see them. But with a storyteller, you're not pretending that the audience isn't there and they're not pretending that you can't see them. So I just thought it was pretty interesting. Like I'd never heard anyone sort of have that perspective before. Um yeah, well, that's that's mostly true. But I've also done I think I did the play Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, which is a one person play, 26 characters, but one person performing. And there is no fourth wall. You yeah. are the audience is very definitely part of the conversation. There you go. Or I yeah. did a play yeah. called Becoming Dr. Ruth, 
that's about Dr. Ruth, and yeah. she's talking to the audience. And so you you've given up that illusion. So yeah, sometimes that's, that's yeah. true. Sometimes sometimes yeah. not. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah it's it's uh, very interesting. It's a great you know conversation. And um, but either um, as an actor or a storyteller, when you get up to perform. Or share your story. I know some people don't love the word perform, but I think it's perform. I know, I know, I know. And <laughs> but, but you uh, know what, Stephen? I've I've taken on that term for myself. I call myself. I stopped calling myself a storyteller and uh-huh. said I'm a story performer because I live in Alabama, mm. and there is a fabulous storytelling tradition here. This Southern storytelling tradition. I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania. Even though I've lived my entire adult life here. Uh, I I am not from here, and this is not the story tradition I grew up in. Mm. And so, if I say I'm a storyteller here, people yeah. think I will be, if not sitting on a hay bale, at least wearing <laughs> a bonnet and telling tall tales. Yeah. And and that is so not what I do. Yeah. That by saying story performer, people have no idea what I'm talking about, and they don't have any expectation. There you go. Well, that's good. No, that's no, that's why yeah. no, that's why I use that term. But I know a lot of people don't like that that idea of performing a story. But uh, in fact, I do perform stories. Yeah. I mean, I tell some medieval stories in costume yeah. with musicians in an accent. I mean, that's very definitely performing. Yeah. And I've had people say both, "Oh, that's that's the best story I've ever heard," and uh-huh. other people say, "That's not storytelling. That's theater." They <laughs> walk out, you know. So, oh, you, no. you know, it's. Here's the here's the thing, mo, mo, unless you are a, a storyteller yourself or an actor yourself, I don't think most audiences care. Yeah. What they want to know is, are you entertaining them? There you go. Are yeah. holding them? And I love the word entertain. I, I read someplace it goes comes from the French entretenir, which means to hold between, hmm. entre and tenir, to hold between. And you, your job is to hold between the audience and the work, the wow. words, the situation, whatever it is. And so the audience doesn't care. Is this theater? Is this storytelling? <laughs> I don't care. I bought my ticket. I came here. It was hard to get a babysitter and get the dog <laughs> quiet. And I just want a nice evening. Don't yeah. tell me. Don't make me decide what to call it. You know? <laughs> there you go. No, I like that. And it's true. You know, people want to, they want to just kind of enter this other world, the world of imagination or the world of memory. If you're telling a story, they want, oh, that reminds me of the time whenever I was 12 and whatever it might be. And what is it for you that really makes a story work well? Well, um, I'm going to weasel a little bit on this and say <laughs> it depends because that whole idea of holding between, I don't think a story exists without the audience, without the listener, even if the listener is one person. And so what makes a good story for one person may not make a very good story for someone else. So for instance, you know, you're telling stories to middle school boys. What makes a good story is probably a lot of bodily fluids and the the better, you know, but if you're telling stories to a group of, you know, maybe, you know, 50 year old women, they're going to want something different from that. And so I don't think there's any one one thing that makes a good story, but I want to come back to our theme of love for Valentine's Day. I think all stories are love stories Hmm. because for me, for a story to work, 
It has to be about something I love. I love the memory. I love the person I'm talking about. I love the topic. I love, and then if I don't love it, Hmm. it's going to come through. I'm not going to put the kind of energy and passion and affection behind it that the audience gets. And in fact, I found this wonderful quote. I hope I can find it that says, um, oh, hang on a second. I'm sorry. I had it and then I put it away. Make stuff you love and talk about stuff you love, and you'll attract people who love that kind of stuff. It's that <laughs> simple. <laughs> and so I really do think people people want to fall in love mm. with the story, with the memory, as you said, whether it's your memory or their memory. They, I think there's, a, a, at, least, at least for me, there, there is so much um, that doesn't work in this world that is distressing and dystopian and off-putting. And every now and then, I need to be reminded that there's also uh, forgiveness and affection and love yeah. and kindness. And somebody's got to tell those stories, or we'll yeah. think they don't exist. Mm. And so, so I think all stories are love stories. If if yeah. it's a good, even if it's just a funny, silly story, it's a love story. One of the things I've always been impressed with your stories is the details. Mm-hmm. When I listen to one of your stories, you'll describe something in great detail. You'll remember people from high school and their names. And and so I guess what I'm wondering is how do how do the details not just help you to picture the story, but to enter the story? Well, often it's the detail that that is my way into a story. Um for instance, the, the story we're going to hear today. For a long time, I had in my mind the Swedish Rhapsody. Hmm. This, this song, and we had a 78 RPM record of it. And I can see that record, that black record. It was, you know, smaller than, a, than the big 33 and a third, but hmm. bigger than a 45 RPM. And it had a, a maroon and gold label on it. And you put it on the record player and I could see those gold letters going round and round and round. And that detail is so close, so, so vivid in my head. And then that was sort of the beginning of this story. And people will hear that show up in that story. But that detail, or I remember, Stephen, when you and I were in, were at school, at storytelling school. Um, Can you imagine that was what, like you imagine? five or six years ago? Oh, oh my God. I'll be quiet. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, back when we were 10, you know. Yeah. Um, but you remember there was a class called It's Impossible? And it was where we were supposed to bring our impossible story, the story that we we really wanted to tell but couldn't kind of get a hook inside mm. it. And I, I I had this story that was about my coming to Alabama um, right out of college. And and I lived on a, a mountain community in Alabama for four months, collecting folk tales and oh, family wow. histories and quilt patterns and all that. And I just knew there's got to be a story there. But how do I get inside the story? And somebody in the class, it was at our fellow student from Alaska, um, said, what is one image you remember from that time? What's one image? And the image was one of the women on the mountain in her bonnet and bib overalls going, come on, babies. Come on, babies. Come on, babies. As she scattered chicken feed hmm. in her yard and the chickens would come running toward her. Come on, babies. 
And that unlocked the story. And so for me, a lot of times the details give you a, a way in if you just start, you know, just start with that detail and then keep keep building, keep building the story around that. Um, I'm sure there's some great metaphor I could use there and I don't know what it is, but where, you know, like a pearl, well, like a pearl where you start with a grain of sand and keep la- layer and layer and layer on top of it. But sometimes the that detail will will um, not only give you an entry into the story, but so often it's the details people will remember Mm. that later when they come up to me and they'll say, you know, it's that story about the 78 RPM record, you know, something about (laughs) the the detail stays with them in a way that the the, sort of the general idea doesn't. And, and again, um, the, the detail of seeing seeing the people and seeing the places in one of those plays that I told you, I did search for signs of intelligent life and universe and had to play all these different characters. And one of them was a 20 some year old man named Paul. (laughs) And he's in the the gym working out in his scene. And I remember the rehearsal, we're rehearsing that scene and the director stopped me. He said, you don't know what Paul looks like, do you? Hmm. And I had a, confess I didn't. He said, I know you can't see him because I can't see him. And he said, if you could see him, I could see him. And so you don't even have to describe all the detail. I mean, you certainly don't want to describe all the detail. But sometimes I find if if I can find the detail in my head that makes a character true, hmm. then I just have to think about that one thing about them as I'm talking about them or as I'm telling their, their story. And the audience gets it. They will find they, this, the strand of silver white hair in the back of her neck or the, you know, um, I don't know, a gesture or some just some little yeah. little thing that marks that person. That's fascinating. I think many years ago, I, I told stories at a, a school and it was this story of us. I was in a swamp. Anyway, so when I was done, this boy came over and he was like, how'd you get that swamp up there? Like he saw a swamp and it was because I saw a swamp, like literally, I think, because I literally could see it around me. Right. And right. That doesn't happen all the time, but those yeah. moments when it does, it's, it's sort of like something magical or whatever, where you see no. the story unfold and people are, there's a story, there's a swamp, there's this person act, yeah. acting out. Yeah. And they, and they, and they connect to that, to that deep, it's the detail that makes that bridge across. It's not that you're doing anything with your gestures or your body to make a swamp. It's just <laughs> like you said, you really see it and you really feel it. And if you let your body respond to that, how hot is it? Where am I? How sticky is the floor? You know, that comes across. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So um, tell us just a little bit about the story we're going to um, listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like, how did you shape this story? In other words, did you start by writing it down? Did you start with it, the tension or the discovery at the end of the story? How, what was sort of the process for you? You know, Stephen, I really wish, I really wish I could remember most of how these stories came together because I would do it again over and over and over again, you know, but it's like once it's almost like you go into this trance or you know, you go into this magic room and you come out and there's a story. It's like, well, wait a minute, that I can't find the door to that magic room anywhere. Where did it go? But this particular story, and it's, it's different in that it's little, 
it's I think it's five little stories, mm. you know, all around one theme. And again, it started with that record and that song, The Swedish Rhapsody. And and I and I didn't know what to do with that one memory of us dancing in the attic. Um, and I guess I, you know, there was a um it started at they started, it was gonna be all about Tom Hamilton. It was the, the people here who Tom <laughs> Hamilton. I was trying to make it all about him, but I couldn't, I kind of couldn't find a way to, where to go with that. Yeah. And so it was just, well, what if I just put that to the side and, and followed my sister Lisa's journey? And then, well, what, what are the connecting threads, yeah. you know, that go through? And what I found is it was all some kind of lesson in love. Yeah. It was all, it ended up being a lesson in love. And I guess what I also love the idea that, Three of them happen in the summer. One happens in the winter and one in the autumn. And so to me, that also was kind of a, a progression of us growing up, the ripening sense of what love is, uh, that kind of. But but how it how it none of that was intentional, Stephen. None of that <laughs> none of that was yeah, outlined and okay, here's how I'm gonna do it, and then that's gonna put the, it just somehow um came came together starting with that record. Well, that is so much fun. So let's listen to the story and we'll come back on after it's done to wrap up with a few closing thoughts. I don't know where you learned about it, but most of what I know about true love, I learned from my older sister, Lisa. From the time she was 15 years old, Lisa knew all about true love. She knew who her true love was. She knew one day she was gonna marry him. One day she was gonna marry Tom Hamilton. Tom Hamilton was suave and sophisticated and breathtakingly handsome, six feet two inches tall, wavy dark brown hair, smoky brown eyes with little gold flecks in them, made him seem a little wild and dangerous when he smiled. <laughs> Tom Hamilton was fabulously wealthy, incredibly successful, recklessly in love with my 15-year-old sister and entirely a figment of her imagination. <laughs> On warm summer evenings, we three sisters, 15-year-old Lisa, 12-year-old Alice, nine-year-old me, would climb up into the attic, a mysterious room with odd angles to the ceiling and triangular-shaped closets. Lisa would head straight for the window seat, a long wooden bench along one wall underneath the front windows. She would lift up the lid of the bench to reveal a storage box that contained a collection of curiosities. Jigsaw puzzles with 498 pieces. <laughs> Strings of Christmas lights shaped like candles with a liquid inside that bubbled like champagne. Lisa would rummage around in that window box and emerge with two treasures. A long roll of baby blue satin fabric left over from some homemade fairy princess Halloween costumes and a brown paper sleeve that contained a single licorice black 78 RPM record. Lisa would balance that record of the spindle of the record player 
the record would drop. The needle would rise, hover above the spinning disc, then it would ease down, find its groove, and as the intricate, exotic gold lettering on the maroon record label spun round and round the equally intricate, equally exotic strains of the Swedish Rhapsody would fill the room. And we would begin to dance, to twirl and spin, but it was a special dance, a special dance that involved the baby blue satin fabric. Here's how it worked. One sister would hold tight to one end of the fabric, holding it sideways like this, and then the other sister would get the other end of the fabric, wrap it around herself, and then curl in and out of the fabric in time to the music as though dancing with a partner with extremely long arms. <laughs> Lisa would twirl in and call out the name of her true love. Oh, Tom, Tom. <laughs> Alice would quickly get bored with the game, go find a quiet spot where she could read Going with the Wind for the eighth time. And me, I just loved spinning in and out of that cool, smooth, slippery fabric. And I learned that summer from my older sister, Lisa, that true love has something to do with feeling a little dizzy and spinny-headed. <laughs> The next year, the year that Lisa was 16, she actually met Tom Hamilton. Not the Tom Hamilton, but a Tom Hamilton. She was at a cookout at a friend's house, and she heard somebody say, hey, there's Tom Hamilton. She looked up to see this boy, 17, 18 years old, blonde crew cut, madras shirt, khaki pants, getting out of the driver's side of a maroon Ford Fairlane. He was not as suave and sophisticated as her Tom Hamilton, but it was Tom Hamilton. And she was sure that this was the finger of fate pointing in her direction. So she got herself introduced to him. After a quick exchange of names, he said, So, you ever play tennis up at the Hampton Park courts? Lisa took a quick mental inventory of the attic, the basement. There had to be some tennis racket somewhere. Oh, sure, I play all the time. <laughs> he looked her up and down. Well... Maybe I'll see you there some Saturday morning. And Lisa knew she had to do two things. She had to find some tennis rackets, and she had to convince Alice to go play tennis with her the next Saturday morning. Well, after three days of negotiations that rivaled the intensity and complexity of the Treaty of Versailles, Alice did agree to go play tennis that Saturday morning, but only after Lisa agreed that Alice could wear Lisa's heart-shaped silver locket anytime she wanted. <laughs> My two sisters arrived at the Hampton Park Court Saturday morning at 9 a.m., stayed until 1 in the afternoon. Tom Hamilton never arrived. Not that Saturday, not the next Saturday, not the Saturday after that. Now, anyone else would have been discouraged, but Lisa was positive this was her date with destiny. And so my two sisters were stalwart in their Saturday morning routine. In fact, by the end of that summer, they should have been the Venus and Serena Williams of their day. <laughs> but the truth is that Lisa never actually played any tennis. She didn't want to be all hot and sweaty when Tom Hamilton <laughs> showed up. So she would just sit there on a blanket under a tree, filing her nails and reading magazines while Alice hit tennis balls against the field house wall over and over and over, four hours at a stretch, developing a pretty good backhand that she still has to this day. As a result of her eight weeks of tennis duty, Alice also acquired permanent ownership of the silver heart-shaped locket, <laughs> lifetime wearing rights to Lisa's seafoam green cashmere sweater set, and three-quarters of a bottle of ambush perfume. 
that Lisa intended to wear on that big first date with Tom Hamilton that never took place. And I learned that summer from my older sister Lisa that true love can only happen if both people actually show up. <laughs> Five years later, the year that I was 15, Lisa got married. Not to Tom Hamilton, but to a great guy named Barry. It was a cathedral wedding at noon on a blazing hot August afternoon in Baltimore, Maryland. Alice and I and two other fortunate friends were selected to be bridesmaids, an honor that included the privilege of wearing in public. <laughs> a high-waisted chiffon bridesmaid's dress in Lisa's favorite color, celery green. <laughs> a color that didn't just make me look sallow, it made me look like I was suffering from a long, debilitating illness. <laughs> Lisa personally selected my hairdo for the big day, something she said would make me look more grown-up and sophisticated, that classic late 1960s upswept do of large lacquered curls piled on top of your head. It looked like I was balancing a tray of shiny brown yeast rolls. <laughs> and in all the pictures of the wedding party, I can be seen smiling broadly, not because I was so happy, but because the hair on the sides of my head was pulled up so tightly. The tips of my ears met in the middle of my skull. It was three days after the wedding before my cheeks relaxed into a normal position. But through it all, Lisa kept saying how everything was just the way she wanted it to be. And I learned that summer from my older sister, Lisa, that true love sometimes has to do with making somebody else happy, no matter how ridiculous you look or feel in the process. <laughs> the man that Lisa married, Barry, was a do-it-yourselfer with an unusual enthusiasm for electronics and holidays a combination that meant every year, the entire month of December, their home was iced like a gingerbread house in the latest collection of illuminated, animated yard art. The Santa waving from the sleigh on the roof, the dancing snowmen, the twirling candy canes. By their fifth year together, the collection had gotten so large they had to have a special direct power line installed into the house just for the decorations. By their sixth year together, from December 1st on, you could see the glow of their house from the interstate. It kind of looked like a municipal airport out in the distance. By the seventh year together, the year they went away for Christmas, they had timers installed on all the lights so that the neighbors wouldn't think something had happened when the lights didn't come on. By their eighth year together, something did happen, and the lights didn't come on. Both Lisa and Barry, too sad to celebrate the season as they divvied up who would get the Santa and who would get the snowmen. And in the end, they just sold the decorations to the people who bought their house. And I learned that winter from my older sister, Lisa, that true love runs on alternating current. And sometimes it glows hot and bright, and sometimes it flickers and dies, and you're left standing there in the dark wondering what happened to the power that used to light up your sky. Nine years ago, Lisa got married again to a great guy named Craig, an accountant by profession, calm, caring man by nature. There was no cathedral involved this time. Nothing was celery green. 
well, except the celery that added a festive touch to the Bloody Marys that we drank as we all gathered there on the decks of the condominiums that had been rented for the wedding weekend there in Bodega Bay, beautiful Northern California. The wedding was going to be Saturday morning out there on a bluff overlooking the ocean, but the night before as we all arrived, we gathered out there to get acquainted, catch up, watch the sun set into the Pacific. I don't think any of us really noticed that Lisa and Craig had disappeared. I went into the house to get some more napkins. I walked into the kitchen. I could hear them talking in the next room. Lisa's voice was kind of low and shaky. I could hear her saying, Craig, I, I'm so scared. Are, are we doing the right thing? We've, we've been single, both of us, such a long time. It just seems like we're taking such a chance. And then she asked him that question that all men love to be asked, especially the night before their wedding. <laughs> Craig, she said, do you love me at all? <laughs> And Craig, accountant by profession, calm, caring man by nature, said, well, let me see. <laughs> Do I love you at all? Well, with rounding, it comes to right at 100% of the time. <laughs> and I learned that autumn from my older sister, Lisa, that true love has something to do with taking a chance and rounding up. And so that's how most of what I know about true love I learned from my older sister, Lisa. And the rest of what I know about true love, that's another story. I love how the story ends, and we'll have to have you back another day to tell us the rest of that. <laughs> ah, the <laughs> rest of the, of the stories, story. the true love, the true love stories. Um, but uh, no, I love, I love the story, and I love the thread that goes through it. Just as you were talking about a few minutes ago, um, and uh, I guess I would say, if people are listening and they're like, actually, that was really kind of fascinating. Like, I've never really heard a story through like that. Do you have a place where people could go to find out when you're performing in different places around the country? where they could, you know, check it out yeah. and hopefully see you in person. Well, they could go to my website, which is storypower, S-T-O-R-Y-P-O-W-E-R, storypower.org. And on there, they will find my upcoming events, which includes um, being teller in residence again this summer up at the International Storytelling Center. I'll be up there in, for a week in August, which is a, always great fun. Um, but also the website has lots of video samples uh, of different stories so they can hear uh, some other some other stories that are there on the website and uh, and lots of other other information. So, but storypower.org is a is a place to go. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and before we uh, before we close out and wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day. Do you have oh, any... happy Valentine's Day! <laughs> do you have any like words of advice for people just as far as sharing their stories? They might say, "I'm not an actor. I can't memorize, or I can't do whatever she does like this," but but all of us are storytellers and we can improve and, and share in our own way. But do you have any thoughts for someone just to give them, uh, you know, some encouragement in sharing their own stories? Yes, I would tell them to find a friend, <laughs> a friend who will listen and talk about one specific thing. I think the 
what I, when I work with people about stories, what I find is people try to tell their whole life story at one time. But talk about what is what we talked about with detail. Find one detail you remember from a time in your life or, or a person who made a difference and tell one detail about them as a place to begin and, and talk, to, talk to someone who will listen to you. And then, and, and then I think you, you start to go from there. I think when we, when we chop our story down into smaller, more manageable and more specific hmm. pieces, um, we see them more clearly and we start to see a way to tell them more clearly. Um, so that would be my advice. Excellent. That's great advice. So, well, Dolores, thank you so much for yeah. joining me. Here. Thank you. This was great. This was fun. Today. And also thanks to all of our listeners. Um, and uh, do check out Dolores when she's performing in your part of the country. We would love to, um, it, you'll you'll enjoy hearing her in person even more than just listening um, to a story, audio story. Uh, for more information about our guests and to check out our other interviews, you can search for us wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can always click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts. Happy Valentine's Day. and. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next Bye. time. Bye.